Good afternoon. I'm G2 Brown from Chicago, Illinois. I am a Atlantic Racial Equity Fellow, and I am the National Director of the Journey for Justice Alliance. We are an alliance of grassroots community organizations in about 36 cities around the country fighting for education equity. I'm Tyler Spencer. I'm the founder and executive director of the Grassroot Project, and we recruit and train college athletes to promote health equity in schools. I'm Rose Longhurst. I'm British, but I'm based in Germany at the moment in Berlin. I'm an Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity based out of LSE. Today, I'll be talking about the EDGE Fund, which is the organization I've been involved with in the UK that funds grassroots groups fighting injustice and inequality. As with many places in the world, nonprofits in the UK tended to have and still do tend to have a charity model of service delivery, either filling gaps that governments are unable to fill due to austerity or other issues, focusing on a charity model where people and communities are not centred and not seen as agentic actors in their own right. So even the ways that the laws and the legislations are set up in the UK, you can't fund certain types of things. So the way that the EDGE Fund was set up was not as a registered charity or a 501c3, it would be in the UK, but instead as a community benefit organisation, so something more similar to a football club or an arts club. This means that we can address the root cause of these issues rather than doing service charity stuff. Often this is borderline legal because of unjust laws. So we support direct action, we support political lobbying, we support campaigning, all the things that create real change. I couldn't have paid Rose to give a better opening. I think regardless of where you live, there's a culture in philanthropy that promotes dependency and more of a service-oriented or charity type of perspective. I think that also links with the fact that uh, based on my understanding, in the United States, almost every right that we have has come as a direct result of community organizing. And in the Black community, the response to our organizing historically has been violent. So what you see in African-American communities, in Black communities around the United States, is that we do social services, but you don't see that many Black-led community organizing groups. Likewise, you don't see a lot of support for Black-led community organizing. Many of the groups that do community organizing that may have Black and Brown constituents, often white-led, I'm sitting here on the west side of Chicago right now. The neighborhood I live in is the murder capital of the city, the highest rate of COVID outbreaks in the city. This is where I come from. So we built the type of network that allows us to say that the only way that we are going to transform our conditions is to have the right to self-determination, that we're able to center it around how we see the world, how the world impacts us, not someone else's opinions of how the world impacts us. So I think that philanthropy has had a serious issue with racism and has had a serious issue with thinking for people instead of supporting the people that know their solutions, but just need the support to be able to do the work. This is another reason that EDGE was established. For example, you would see a lot of these very big mainstream disability organizations that spoke on behalf of disabled people, often not led by disabled people, and often not advocating for the things that disabled people actually want and need. This was a political choice. This is how you get the funding, how you sell someone as worthy of charity and altruistic support rather than actually thinking about systems change. In the light of the COVID 19 crisis, the EDGE Fund has had to change 
as everyone has and is having to respond to the needs of our community. We're a fund that's by and for the people that are working on these issues day to day, the people on the front lines and grassroots organisers. We were established to fund systemic change work and to fund root cause work. But right now we're fighting for survival because how can people do the work for systems change when they're struggling day to day? So we've had to pivot somewhat and set up a rapid response fund to try and support those community organisers with their immediate needs. The EDGE Fund supports grassroots groups that don't get funding from other sources. So the majority of the groups that we work with don't have any staff members, have never received any grant funding whatsoever. And right now, they can't fundraise like they normally do because they normally fundraise from selling things like badges or t-shirts or events that they run or community fundraising in other ways. And obviously, these are things you just can't do digitally and you can't do online. And this brings me to another point that many of the groups and organizations that we work with, they don't have access to the high-speed internet they need, the multiple technologies that allow them to stay connected and organize in the ways that they are used to, because they're normally very, very community-led. This is just one way that COVID is hitting marginalized communities harder Even if we in the UK perhaps have a very different social safety net than the US has, and furlough in the UK means something very different than it does in the US, who is that social safety net available to? It's not available to the types of organisations that Edge Fund supports. It's not available to the sex workers that we work with. It's not available to the queer asylum seekers. It's not available to the disabled activists who have already been telling us for years that they are living really, really on the breadline. The racialized minorities that are already under surveillance, the surveillance is only increasing. And so those that were already struggling against a really unjust system, COVID is just exacerbating that. And it's really making the fault lines even more exposed. I started my organization in 2008. And I'm remembering that our first funder was similar to the Edge Fund. It was actually based in the UK, the MTV Staying Alive Foundation. And they were giving grants to organizations to get started that were led by young people that were not registered with the government. And what we were doing, although it doesn't seem that revolutionary, back then we had been banned by one of our universities because we were doing sex ed in schools and we were answering kids' questions when they wanted to know about condom use. And that was not allowed because it was meant to be only to talk about abstinence until marriage. And funders who are able to support and be as flexible as something like the Edge Fund or the MTV Staying Alive Foundation, I think those are going to be also really critical to ensuring that the people who need resources the most, the people with real ideas that might not otherwise be able to get funding, that those organizations can get started. We would have never even be here if it weren't for people who took a risk and who recognized the need and who recognized a good idea from people that didn't have the right access to resources back then. Just reflecting a little bit on what both of you have said, I think what's going to be really obvious, and if it's not obvious now, certainly will be more and more obvious over the next six months, a year, is how dependent this whole sector is. At least traditional 501c3 is what we call in the States, registered nonprofit organizations, how dependent we are on philanthropy. And if philanthropy chooses not to support in the ways that it traditionally has or to support less, I think what we're going to realize is the power of our whole sector, which is that we have such strong voices and we have very unique other types of non-financial resources. I work in health and you've seen these epidemiologic curves. And for me, reflecting on the sector, I think that right now is kind of a latent phase where 
many nonprofits are really financially struggling now, but I think what I've heard from philanthropy is that foundations are saying, we can't support you anymore, or we might have to support less, or we're not going to support this and this and this type of organization. So I think that we will probably have perhaps a stronger voice in the next six months to a year as we try to determine the role that our organization plays and the response that we have to both the inequities that have been illuminated by the epidemic and the role that we play in ensuring that this work continues in the post-COVID world. Absolutely. As we develop the Journey for Justice Alliance, one of the things that we realized is that we're not going to be funded at the same rate as other national organizations. So what was key for us were relationships. We did not want to have a national organization that was bound by many grants. What we wanted to do was build a national organization that was rooted in real struggle. So a lot of my work was and is to actually go to Camden, New Jersey, in a church with a group of angry parents and help them build organization. A group of students doing a sit-in in a band room demanding that their teacher is rehired help them with strategy, help them build organization in many of these places where we have membership organizations. And because of that, we have an alliance that has a real bond, right? Because we've actually done work on the ground together on a consistent basis. And I think that moving forward, that's what we're going to need. So the financial resources are one thing, but having strong relationships that are rooted in actually trying to transform conditions builds real unity. And it also creates a space for creativity. You know, mama had to figure out how to feed five kids. Right. And so you have to figure out how to make that happen. And so what's happening with the explosion of COVID is I'm working with a doctor, Ezekiel Richardson at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. And he called me over a month ago and he said that the most important people in this fight in the black community are going to be community organizers because we know what the health disparities are going to be. So the best way for us not to fall victim to it is not to get it. And so many of our cities have been activated. The reason I'm sitting here with my hoodie on and everything is because I just left our Coco Serves project, where we have about 40 volunteers in a neighborhood church. We've given out literally over 2,000 bags to elders in the Bronzeville community on the south side of Chicago. It's a youth-led initiative. It's young people from the neighborhood stepping up, along with parents, along with other adults, organizing a system of food production and delivery that makes sure that elders are able to shelter in place and that they have some type of human contact and they know that somebody cares about them. So right now, about 12 of our cities have launched similar types of projects. And to be honest with you, we raise the money hand to fist. So for example, I do a lot of my shopping at the dollar store. <laughs> so I said, I need 200 bars of soap. I need this and this, this. Can you give me a deal? And I'm negotiating with them in the dollar store. And so what's happened is that people in the community are very appreciative of these efforts. And what happens to local organizations is ultimately they will get stronger because those people will say, the people that thought about me in Atlanta was Project South. It wasn't city government. It was Project South that came and checked on me. In Chicago, it came with Oakland Community Organization. For many of us, we had to somehow get over the shock of what we were seeing, myself included. I'm not a spring chicken. So I had to really figure, okay, how can I be active but stay safe? And I had to get that information from doctors, we had doctors do Zoom calls with our membership. We called it Clarity and Courage so that people can be clear. We have to be there for our folk. So how do we do this and stay safe? It's incredible hearing those stories, you 2 What's awesome about what G2 is doing is that they're working on issues of equity at the same time as being able to directly respond and adapt, which I think is really amazing to see during the epidemic. 
there's a huge emphasis on addressing the crisis, which absolutely needs to be addressed. And we need to be giving our resources to the people who desperately need them right now. But I think what concerns me is the possibility that we'll forget about the reasons that people are suffering disproportionately for reasons that are based around equity. What concerns me is that in the sector at large, organizations that might not do as great of a job as G2 has been able to do with his work, organizations that are working on policy, for instance, that are organizing people in person to demand different policies about education or about health, that those organizations in this period of tremendous financial constraint and where it's impossible for them or very difficult for them to maybe virtually organize in a way that people who have great access to internet and phone and that sort of thing can, that these organizations in the next couple of months might really struggle just to stay alive. And what will the post-COVID world look like if organizations that maybe are not well equipped to distribute resources and services and meet face-to-face with people who they previously might have been able to, what happens if they disappear from the sector? Let's put the fire out, but let's not forget about all of the work that was happening to prevent fires impacting people disproportionately. My organization is very grant-based. If I compare our type of nonprofit to a small business, in some ways, we are better equipped to quote-unquote weather the storm. Many small businesses operate day-to-day based on providing a service and getting paid in cash. Maybe one saving grace in this time of a grant is that grant funders often give for a period of six months or a year, two years or three years. And what I've seen on the really positive side is that many philanthropic foundations are communicating to us use your funding however you best need it during this time. So they might have given us funding to provide education. Our organization provides a lot of health education in schools, and we use university student-athletes as volunteers. Universities are now closed. Athletes are not allowed to be there, and schools are closed. So we are doing some virtual programming, but our core ethos is that human-to-human interaction is so incredibly important in terms of listening to kids, engaging with them in meaningful dialogue around how health messages actually impact their lives. There's an element that you can achieve virtually, but I think our whole team is really focused on getting back to human to human interaction as soon as possible. But what's been nice is that unlike a business that would have had to shut our doors if we were dependent on delivering a service, we have funders that are giving us a cushion and saying, we've already given you resources. We understand that this is a different climate. You use these funds however you can to maintain your operations, do some virtual programming. But we're also planning to grow to other cities in the United States in the next couple of years. And so I've been in conversation with a lot of other foundations and corporate sponsors around trying to get funding to bring our programs to Philadelphia or Chicago. And pretty much all of those funders are warning unofficially at this moment that they may cut funding for new projects. They only want to take care of the organizations that they've already given funding to. I started my organization when I was 22 in the peak of the last economic crisis. Back then, we were just getting started. So any resources we were able to get from funders was useful. We weren't risking any sort of collapse because we were nothing then. But the environment looks like it could have looked back in 2008, which is that funders are starting to say, we can't give new funding. We're going to cut a grant cycle. And so that's why I get nervous that Right now, there might not be a huge, quote unquote, death of nonprofit organizations in America, because I think funders are being very generous. What I get nervous about is organizations that want to get started and can't, organizations that want to continue or want to grow, and they can't because funders are now withholding grants for a period. That's why I think we could be in this latent period right now as a sector where we're all more or less okay or allowed to keep our lights on. 
but in six months, there could be, as there's been a spike in COVID cases, there could be a real spike in organizations in America that are no longer able to sustain themselves. Something I'm hearing in common between the three of us here, human beings, people, organizers are critical to the work, whether we're funded by traditional grants or we're gaining resources from small donations in the community or however we're funded. I think this field of equity is about finding people that are able to build those networks and relationships and that have the passion and that are willing to go through the struggles. The worst fear is that I would have to furlough any employees. There's no way that we would be able to do any of the work we're doing now if it weren't for the people that have been committed to our organization and working in the community and building these really valuable relationships for years. I know that in any industry, in any business, laying someone off is an awful thing. But from my perspective, in the nonprofit sector, in the community organizing field, the people are so critical. But I think the positions are so fragile right now and potentially could be even more fragile in the months to come. J4J started with $30,000. We didn't have any staff. It was the Shot Foundation for School Reform that believed in our capacity to build a national organization. I was the education organizer at a local organization that had built relationships with people around the country. And as school privatization began to spread, we realized that we had to have a united front. But in regards to what my biggest fear is, and I think what pushes us to say that we have to step up in this moment, is the notion of disaster capitalism and knowing what happened in New Orleans. One out of the three people that left New Orleans couldn't come back home and the whole landscape of that city has changed. The power dynamic in that city has changed, right? The crack epidemic, which is one of the biggest unspoken examples of disaster capitalism that you could think about, has resulted in the ruining of millions of lives of black and brown people. Now there's an opioid pandemic, it's a healthcare issue. And so we're concerned that a lot of the things that we're seeing in our communities, like in New Jersey, they actually have COVID checkpoints where they're checking people to see if you have COVID. They're checking your IDs to make sure that you live in neighborhoods. Curfews, Goldman Sachs lobbying the U.S. Department of Education about expanding virtual charter schools. Post-COVID, if we don't have a vision for our future, somebody else does. As Tyler spoke to, yes, address the immediate fires, but begin to do the work to say, what should our lives look like post-COVID? And equity, to me, is at the core of it. No matter whether you're talking about housing, health, education, we just did an action about a week ago when we were talking about Chicago is 30% Black, but with 70% of the COVID deaths. When you go through the Black community, half the hospitals are closed, and the ones that are not closed are starved to barely being able to operate. And we raised that issue with the city of Chicago. Racism didn't start with COVID. And so to sit here and say that we're catching it because we're not sheltering in place, we're catching it because we're not staying six feet apart, is ridiculous. And so I think that while capitalists and corporations see this as an opportunity, we must see it as one too, and actually do the organizing work to make sure that we're advancing a vision that's rooted in equity. I see so many changes on the horizon in this field with COVID-19, and it's deeply complex, but I see pros. I really do. I see the community response and the mutual aid funds that have sprung up and the way that we're all caring for one another and looking out for one another in very deep and meaningful ways that perhaps were unimaginable a few months ago. The focus on the local level 
I think this is a wonderful thing to inspire and give hope. But I also see this moment, exactly as G2 said, is an opportunity. We are being exposed to really how inequality and injustice is manifest in so many levels of our society. And I think that this is a real opportunity for us to push forward better ideas. The downsides and the threat that I see is that we are so focused on the humanitarian response, which is so needed because of these inequities, that we don't focus on the systemic change, which is what Tyler was speaking to earlier, Mm -hmm. that we lose sight of the big picture stuff that really needs to change the systems. So for me, the focus really needs to be on building back better. And inequality is at the root of all of that. I think the red flag now is that if we don't take action and think, about ways that we can support equity work now, then in six months or seven months, we might look back and say, why didn't we start a fund to support organizations that were doing important work before COVID? Because like I've said, I'm worried that there could be a real spike in closures of organizations that were doing the equity work. There is a real undeniable need for charity to mitigate the impact of the epidemic right now. But in the future, when things improve, we have to make sure that we have a strategy in place to keep the equity work moving so that a future epidemic, a future pandemic doesn't impact people in the way that it has with COVID. You know, a great man taught me that the foundation of any nation are the institutions that lay the structure for the people's development. And I've learned in my work that one of the ways you can define racism is institutionalized lovelessness. But I'm a believer. I've been a part of organizing campaigns that were small and large, where people who had nothing materially beat very powerful interests. And I think the challenge for us in the world that we live in now is to stop working in our silos and realize like if you got people that worked on climate justice, the rights of women, and education and you looked at their platforms, even if they never met with each other, you would see a common value system that flows through each of those platforms. But we tend to not understand how we've been indoctrinated to not realize that we are the forces for a new movement for a more humane world. And I think that's the direction we have to move in. We have to believe, we have to challenge ourselves, we have to face our ugly, and we have to be bold enough to dream a new world and disciplined enough to do the work.